Well, good morning. Welcome to week four of the Breakfast Club. We get to jump into the princess today. How, how many of you watched uh, the royal wedding? See, second hour was more, first hour was like, no, we don't like the Brits. We beat them once. We don't want to talk about it. They, they're, you know, they're, they're, they get up early. They're kind of grumpy sometimes. So yeah, yeah, a lot of us watched uh, the royal wedding. I, I need to be, confess, I, I know very little about princesses. Um, even though I had a younger sister, uh, I have a home of four boys. And so we didn't have much conversation about princess stuff. Uh, not that we don't talk about life and that kind of, but, but it, it's foreign to me to even think about this kind of concept and, and fairy tales. And so we just don't do much of that, okay? But one of the things I love about scripture is that it is filled with several narratives, several stories or conversations that you can jump into and be a part of. And the message we're going to look at today out of the book of Esther really fits that. But the character we're looking at today is Molly Ringwald's character, uh, Claire Standish. Do you remember her? Yeah, she was the princess. It could almost be Claire standoffish. You know, she just was kind of better than everybody else. You know, she kind of uh, was known for her uh, lunch. Remember when she sat down, some had a, a regular just bologna sandwich. She had sushi you know, which every student brings in their lunch pail, right? You know, uh, she just was a little bit more done up than the rest of them. And a matter of fact, one of the, one of the most awkward scenes in the movie is when um, the brain, you know, Brian Johnson, he asks her a question. So will we still be friends on Monday morning? To which she kindly answers, probably not, you know? <laughs> no, what world do you live in? We're not the same people, right? And oftentimes when you think about these characters like a princess, um, we think in our world, those who have been given much are expected much. People of power and influence and prestige and affluence that, you know, there's, there's a little bit of expectation that people who have that role, the goal would be that they would leverage their lives in a way for the benefit of others. But sometimes in our world, people of power, people of influence, people of affluence, they, they make it all about themselves. And unfortunately, in Molly Ringwald's character, that was her story. Now, the nice thing is the character we're going to look at today is much different than Molly Ringworld, and her name is Esther. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to go ahead and encourage you open, to open up to the book of Esther. Now, this is an Old Testament story that many of you may or may not know. Now, if you have younger kids or maybe even older kids and you like to read them bedtime stories, this is a story worth reading chapter by chapter, just letting it play out. But we are going to give you the cliff notes of the entire book of Esther today so that you can hear the message of how God takes what will be a queen and leverages her life for his glory and his honor. Now, if you understand anything about the book of Esther, it's kind of like this. It's, it's a book that captures what all great stories have. It has a heroine. It has uh, a villain. It has a group of people that need to be saved. Uh, and it all comes colliding together through power and family and bloodlines. And, uh, you know, it's perfect for a lifetime for women moment. I mean, it's just, it's got that kind of feel to it. It should be scripted out into a real life story. So you kind of got how all this comes together. But the book of Esther actually wraps up with a, a pretty nice bow. And that bow that wraps up on the end of it is uh, the Perdim Festival. Now, the Purim Festival is not something that we know real well. And I, I don't roll my R's real well. I don't speak Hebrew very well. Um, but this festival is a festival that still gets practiced today. But it's a party. It's a celebration. 
And the Jews have been captured by Persia, and they're in a scenario where there is great crisis. But as the story of Esther culminates, it finishes with this kind of statement in Esther chapter 9, verse 26 through 28. Therefore, these days were called Purim, for the word pure. Um, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who should be, uh, all of them should, without fail, observe these two days every year in the way that's prescribed and in the time that's appointed. These days should be remembered and be observed in everything gather, uh, every generation and by every family in every province and every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So the group of people, the Jews, are in a situation where Persia has taken them captive. And they're in a crisis moment where their lives are to be threatened. And what we understand is that this festival is an incredibly huge ordeal. Much like when you read the book of Exodus and you hear about how God provided and God worked in their life, there are festivals that came out of the nation of Israel when they left Egypt. So it is true about this situation. Here's what's interesting is this festival is still celebrated today and it should be considered a party of parties because of what they're celebrating. Now this word perdim or coming from the word pure comes from the word lot and not like a lot of, but like casting lot or throwing dice because as you'll hear this story gets played out they cast lots they rolled dice to guess on the day that they were going to have this this giant extinction this genocide that was going to play out against the Jews but it was established to celebrate all that God was doing and all that God has done within their people and so in, in summation the feast this festival is a, a, a remembrance of the divine nature of God is how it could best be described. Celebrating his protection, God's providence, and God's redemptive plan. And here's what we do when we spend time in remembrance, thinking back on things. When we remember what God has done, we remember what God is doing. That's one of the reasons we celebrate communion, isn't it? to remind ourselves of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because we're reminded that the mission of God has always been about redeeming all people, and we're a part of that. We're a part of that great story. Sometimes when we remember and reflect, we celebrate, and we, we party a little bit. We go back and we thank God for all that he's done, and that is where this story ends up as God delivers their nation. Now, the story of Esther begins with a, with a queen by the name of Queen Vashti. And Queen Vashti is not known much throughout this book of Esther. But what we do know is that she gives up her throne. She gives up her royal place, which allows over time for this woman named Esther to become queen. Now, the king of the day, the king of Persia, is uh, Ahasuerus. It's easy for me to say, right? Uh, better known by his nickname, King Xerxes. Okay, now some of you instantly go to 300. This is Sparta. Um, that, kind of, but not really, okay? But this is Persia. This is King Xerxes. And he has conquered the known land. He has, he has become the dominant empire of the day. And the Jews are now in oppression. They're captured with the Persians. Their life is not their own. 
and they now submit to a different authority. And so the king, without his queen Vashti, he decides, I need a new queen. And so he, being the man of power, and unfortunately this is not real, really kosher in today's world, and it's appropriate that it shouldn't be okay in today's world, he decides that he's going to set up a beauty contest for himself from the women of all the lands, and each, each group will present their most beautiful woman, and she will be his queen, Okay. This is, I, I didn't write this. It's just the history in the day that it was, okay? Here's what it says in Esther chapter 2. Verse 3, it says this, Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of this realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegel, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let the beauty treatments be given to them. Let the young woman who pleases the king be the queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed the king. I, I bet it did, okay? And he followed it. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. So she won favor, won his favor and the approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and he made her the queen instead of Vashti. So this seems like good news, right? Esther's going to be the queen. She's at the right hand of the king. She's at the most vulnerable and most opportunistic op uh, place to reach this king. But she's seen and should be seen more as the underdog. She has a, a family member who's next to her, who stays very close to her, and gives her advice and just says, you need to keep your heritage, your faith at a minimum. It doesn't seem like advice you'd want to give to somebody necessarily or a message that we would want to share about great faith. But he begins with a conversation of just kind of keep it to yourself. Kind of keep it behind closed doors. But then something happens. Something happens while Esther is queen and Mordecai is out and about in his everyday life. And he hears of a plot to kill the king. This is her uncle. And so her uncle comes to her and she explain, he explains, you need to warn the king. They're going to kill him. We should protect him. And so sure enough, uh, Esther goes to the king, tells King Xerxes that there is a plot against him. And ultimately Mordecai, Mordecai saves King Xerxes' life. And the king does nothing to say thank you. Not a gift card to Starbucks, nothing, Right? And so here's what happens. It goes on a little bit. And we find out that Haman is the number two of King Xerxes. He's the enforcer. He's the bodyguard. He's the guy that gets stuff done, the dirty stuff done for the king. Now, he's important to understand because he actually comes from a group of people called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites and the Israelites warred together. And the Amalekites wanted to see the Israelites, the Jewish people, wiped out. And so he ultimately goes to the king. The king has taken over this group of people. And he offers, Haman offers 10,000 talents of silver and convinces him that this group of people should be eliminated. And the king agrees. This is where it begins to get tense. So the king officially decrees, hands over opportunities, basically sends out the king's official letterheads, or in other words, on the king's letterhead. He sends out these letters that there is going to be a, a mass genocide of the Jews, of these people uh, who are not responding back 
to Mord- back to King Xerxes. The truth of the matter is, one day Haman was walking about, out and about the community, and while he was walking out and about, it was customary for the community to bow and to honor the king's men's. Guess which man doesn't bend to Haman? It is Esther's uncle, Mordecai. And so out of anger against these people, out of anger against Mordecai, he conjures up this entire plan of this group of people that are living in rebellion back to the king, and they begin to cast lots. Let's figure out when this is going to happen. Let's, let's set a date on the calendar, and when it happens, we will carry this out. And to this day, this festival is carried out in February or March, depending on where it falls on the calendar, reminding them of how God delivered them. But something happens. Something happens in the midst of this as this whole story begins to build and the nation of Israel is potentially ending in peril. You begin to see these conversations play out between Esther and Mordecai and you know what word through the entire book of Esther is never seen? The name of God. When you read the book of Esther, God's name or speaking of God is nowhere to be found in the book of Esther. So you have God's people in peril. You have evil men and women plotting to plan out this evil course. And God is nowhere read in the pages, heard in its words, or understood in the moment. Have you been there in your own life? How do we respond when we don't sense God being present? How do we respond when we don't hear God in our moments? How do we respond when we feel like we're all alone and life is pressing in? What do you do? when you feel like God is hiding from you when you need him to be seen the most. Mordecai decides that there needs to be some action. So he goes to his niece and he says, Esther, you need to step up and you need to talk to the king. Now this was seen as illegal. You don't just announce yourself to the king. You only respond to the king when the king invites you. And so to have an agenda and to have a desired meeting with the king would not be appropriate And so what Mordecai is literally asking is, would you put your life on the line to have a conversation with the king so that it might save our people? And ultimately what Esther begins to choose is Esther chose her loyalty to God over her royalty. Esther begins to wrestle with her place, her moment in her life, who she is and where she is, and begins to push all the chips in the middle to give, up her, to give up her royalty, her position, her prominence for her loyalty, her faithfulness back to God. This is when Esther really begins to look like Jesus because isn't that what Jesus did? That Jesus gave up all his power, all his privilege, being at the right hand of God and took on the form of flesh, became a servant and took on our death for our redemption, for our forgiveness. She decides to ask and this act, and this is what it says in, in chapter 4, verse 14. Mordecai is speaking to Esther, and he says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father, your father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you have come to your royal position For such a time as this. What a great quote. Esther sent her reply then to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews that are in Susa. 
and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's perspective, isn't it? You don't hear God, you don't sense God, but you know that what God is about. You know God's character. You know his heart, his plan. You, as a young Jewish Hebrew woman, you have celebrated festivals of God's deliverance, of God's hand, of God working in some of the most difficult times in their lives. She begins to move forward. She begins to act and she begins to literally go to stand before her king. Let me ask you real quick. How do you respond in this life when you know what God has willed for you and yet he appears to be hidden? How do you respond when you, you, you know God has put something on your heart, in your mind, uh, in your family, in your community, you see a need? How do, how do you respond when those moments and those opportunities are around you but you don't sense that God is there? It's interesting because Esther still chooses to move forward. She still chooses to act. And maybe that's why they call it faith, right? Maybe it's, that's why the great stories of faith are in moments of obscurity or discomfort or grand moments of lack of clarity. I mean, think about this for a moment. In, in the American church, in, in the world that we're a part of, it seems like the more we live out our faith, the more we desire comfort. Would you agree? The more we want things to be the same, we have certain expectations. We want it to be the way that we like it. And we start to get into this rhythm about, I want faith. I want my church. I want my life to be this. Even longer we live out our faith, we wonder why hardship or trouble or circumstances come around. God, I've been faithful for so many years. God, why would this happen me. And I wonder, I wonder if our life of faith, when it becomes normal and comfortable and exactly what we want, can we really call that faith? Can we call that faith? Every now and then we need to be disrupted. Every now and then we need something that breaks through. Every now and then we need something that dislodges our footing and begins to put us back to our knees where we lean back into God. More often than not, God is not hidden. We just haven't moved to a place where we can see God moving in our life and in our world around us. Esther goes in and she shares what's about to happen she shares that there is a, a group of people that are about to be wiped out, her people, because someone has made this terrible plan to wipe them out. And King Xerxes begins to be troubled by this. But because she has gone above and beyond for him, he begins to ask her this question. It's this repeatable question that happens in the book of Esther. Esther, what do you want? What do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? She decides that she wants to throw a feast. Not for her people, but for the king and his right-hand man, for Haman. Now you can imagine, you can imagine this is where it can seem a little peculiar. And if you're Haman, you're wondering what is up? What's playing out? And he begins to realize that maybe his plans, maybe, maybe his circumstances are, are now in a, in a different position. He doesn't have the king's ear like he used to. She has the king's ear. 
And the king, of course, has no clue what's really coming to bear in this moment. But what's coming to bear is the people of God are in peril. The uncle of the queen has come to her. Her family has come to her and said, do whatever it takes to save us. But the king stands in the middle wanting to honor his queen while his right-hand person is now raising up a coup to wipe out those very people. And so suddenly, something happens in the king's life that's very timely, maybe a divine interruption, if you will. The king goes to bed and he doesn't sleep well. So while he's not sleeping well, he decides he's going to do what most kings do. He gets up and he asks for the journals, the annals of the king's history to be brought to him. He wants to read his own press clippings, okay? That's what's going on. He wants to read about how great of a king he is. He wants to read about the history of his kingdom. He wants to pause for a moment and bask in who he is. And while he's reading, he's reminded of a scenario where a plot came against him to kill him. And a man shared with the queen this coup. And it saved his life. And you know what the king decides? We should honor this guy. I didn't give him a two hump camel. I didn't give him a Starbucks gift card. This guy needs to be thanked in some way, in a special way. And so he begins to wrestle with, what should I do? Matter of fact, his number two begins to come back into his room and into his life later that day. And he begins to have a conversation with him. Look what it says. Esther chapter six, verse five. His attendants answered, Haman is standing out in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Pause. Now, if you're Haman and you're the number two, who do you think the king's talking about, right? Right? Starts with an H, rhymes with Amen, right? Haman's like, oh yeah, we are getting the upgrade to the palace. Here we go. So he answers, he says this. Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered, for the man the king delights to honor, have him bring the royal robe the king has worn. Have him bring a horse the king has ridden with a royal crest placed on it said, do you understand what Haman's asking for? Haman wants to be king for the day. He wants to know what it's like to sit in the big chair. He wants to grab all that this kingdom has to honor and place it squarely on himself. I love this, don't you? Maybe that's why scripture said, says pride comes before the fall. I mean, this is a great story. It's a masterpiece. And you, you, you almost can't make this up, but the arrogance of Haman gets so great, it's ultimately going to lead to his downfall, where he gets embarrassed because Mordecai gets honored and the plan to get rid of the Jews gets stifled. And it's apparent that even though we don't see God, God is moving in their midst. Ultimately, Esther positions the prominence, excuse me, Esther's position of prominence, I can't even say this five times, okay. You say that five times, I can't even say it once, okay. Esther's position of prominence, prominently positioned God. Was that so hard to say? Whew. She made the choice. She made the choice from her life, from her direction, to just say, all that I am and all that I have is God's. 
This position of power, this position of opportunity is not by my merit, is not for my benefit, it's for God's. It's not even for my people's benefit. It's for God's benefit that the whole world might know this God. Even though God is never mentioned, it's crystal clear in Esther's life that God is at work. That Mordecai is rooted in his faithfulness back to God. That there is trust beyond vision or hearing what God is doing. They sense that God is at work. It's a great reminder when God appears to be hidden, he appears working in hidden ways. Have you ever felt like God was silent in your life? You know, let's be honest. I, I stand up here and I, I know a lot of your guys' stories. You know some of my stories. You know moments of grief or trial or struggle. And I know there have been times in our lives that God has been quiet. That what you hoped for, what you believed in, what you expected, was not what came across the front screen of your life. How do you respond? You know, it's interesting that thousands of years after Esther, there was a man by the name of Paul. Paul responds to this, this message of Jesus because Jesus, of course, being God and man, came and gave his life, died a death on a cross for our sins, for life everlasting. And Paul begins to write a letter to the church in Rome. And what's interesting about the church in Rome is that it's overseen by a different government. The people are oppressed. Their lives are not their own. No, they're not in slavery like they were in Egypt. <laughs> but they're being persecuted. They're being tormented. They're being killed because of their faith. And in the midst of beginning to write this letter to the early church, he, he gives this banner statement out of Romans chapter 8 about God's love for us. And it's written in the midst of one of the darkest times of the early church. But here's what it says. Who will separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor future, nor any powers, neither the height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will separate us or be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Can you hear those words? When we don't see God, when we don't hear God, we don't know what God's moving, it does not mean that God does not love us. And like Esther, maybe it's our chance to step out in faith. Maybe it's the very divine interruption that we need into our lives. Maybe it's that moment of testing or crisis that is drawing a line in the sand for us to be refined and, and conformed into the very heart of God that he would pour us out 
and we might live like him. So think about this. Even when you don't sense or feel or see God, believe that God is there, that he's at work. For like Esther and Mordecai and the Jews screaming, God, where are you? In their action, in their faithfulness, God worked through their lives and did something even greater than they could imagine. For the people of Rome who were chasing after God and loving God, but yet seeing the persecution and the impression, they leaned in and trusted God to the point that Christianity never stopped. And now you and I, you, we celebrate this great gift of grace from Jesus. Even to a church today that is desperately trying to keep its arms open to reach everyone and to grow by reaching the one, the one that's far from God. Even for the Christian who does not always get it right to not give up in these moments. Even for the one who has yet to turn their ear to Jesus, to repent of their sin and chase after him with their life. Even to the follower of Jesus who's making strides and growing because of Jesus in their life, but, but is yet to hit a bump of crisis. God's love is for everyone. And to anyone, when it appears to be hidden, like God is not there, he is at work in our life, even in hidden ways. So how might we respond? How might we live if we lived in these moments to trust God, to be faithful, even when we don't sense that he's there? Let's move to a time of response. When you read a story like Esther, uh, sometimes you can cast it off and say, oh, I've been there, done that. Of course that works in Esther's life. But if we're not careful, we, we forget the truth that God works in our lives that way too. It's difficult sometimes to hear a story like, like Esther's and we realize how much crisis there truly is. It's life and death. But Esther gets an answer. Esther gets her friends and family saved. And sometimes we look at our lives and we say, why not us? I wish I knew. I really wish I knew why some of the circumstances that we get stuck in or we're wrestling with or that seem to have us in shackles don't just get taken away. I, I don't know. Maybe it is because God is conforming us. Maybe it's because God is stretching it. Maybe it's because God's refining us. But for those of us who have gone through incredible amounts and times and seasons of suffering, you know there gets to be a point where you go, God, isn't this enough? But what if the story of Esther is the reminder for all of us that all that we have and all that we are is God's. From the very breath that we breathe, from the family that we're connected with, to the church that we're a part of and call family, to the coworkers that we sit and stand next to, to the, to the neighbor that is closest to our home, to the, to the friend that we get together with every Tuesday night to play cards with, to the, to the person that you've had a grudge against. What if everything that we have and all that we are is ultimately God's? 
What if we leverage that for God's glory like Esther? Some of us, some of us are at a growth point where we've started young in our faith and we're like, that seems very daunting. Maybe this is the first time that you've taken that step. For those of us who have taken this journey, we want to say, come on, take the risk. But to most of us in this room, most of us have danced with Jesus for quite a while. We've shown up in church. We've done some classes. We learned some songs. We have favorite verses. And for the majority of us, oftentimes when things like this happen in our life, there's two reactions. One is we are frozen in a rut because of hurt or we are frozen in a rut because of fear. Both hurt, don't they? So what if today God is asking you to say, you know what, today's that day to be interrupted. To take your faith that you want to fit in a box and to check off a list. (laughs) A faith that you want to follow your plan and schedule to hit the benchmarks that you're aiming for to take all of that drawer and just lay it out in front of God and say, all that I have, all that I am, is yours. What would that look like? Because we believe, not only are there people here today that need to accept Christ, not only are there people today that maybe need to step out and bury themselves in the water of baptism and accept that forgiveness and declare publicly that God, my life is yours, But there is a group of people that have been given great opportunity, great relationships, great things around them that if we leverage them back to God, the whole world might know his love in a way like never before. And so what if today as a church we began to pray that God interrupt my life? That's what I'm going to pray for us as we get ready to respond. In just a moment, you're going to be given the privilege to come, and many of you will stop and pray. Several of you will go to the tables, and you'll take the bread and the juice. We'll take a time of communion to reflect on the broken body and his shed blood. Uh, many of us will go to the, these response boxes where we'll give either of our tithes and offerings or these connection cards of decisions of faith, or maybe we'll grab our app and respond through the Give app. But In these next few moments, we're all going to respond. But what if, what if we all just prayed, God, interrupt me? So I want to pray that today. I hope it doesn't make you angry. I I pray it doesn't screw up the rest of your week. But I don't know about you, but I could use a lot less of me and a lot more of God. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And when I say amen, I'll ask you to stand, and you'll join in the worship with the guys. But but let's just take a moment to pause, to reflect, and to let God speak in this moment. Let's pray. God, we can't say anything but thank you when we look to the world around us. Creation itself is magnificent. And all of the earth cries out for your glory. 
And yet, God, there are times in our lives where we, we believe in you. We like what this church thing does for us. But God, sometimes we make this very mission about us. And so God, when we see a story like Esther and we realize she's at the pinnacle of popularity, that she has everything at her fingertips, and yet she says, if I perish, I perish. Such bold confidence comes from a person who has everything of their life in your hands. So God, we ask that you interrupt us. If that means taking us and pouring us out, God, pour us out. If that means taking our family and pouring our family out, then so be it. If it means taking our marriage and pouring it out to put it back, then so be it. If it means taking our church to pour us out, fill us with, God, do that. But our desire as a church is to chase you, to live your character to trust your promises, to bet every time of our lives on your deliverance and your will. God, there are some enduring, enduring lives in this room. And God, I know that some of them, their hearts have been hardened because if they let their guard down, they're afraid that they would break. There are people in this room who are fearful. That's how they've seen others go through struggles or hardships. And God, it's not comfortable to question what's going on in our lives. It's not comfortable to feel the crisis in our lives. But God, I would ask that you would break our hearts from bending our knees to being comfortable. God, if that means dumping us out, then so be it. Because God, who we want to be, who we believe you've created us to be, is to be like you. Faithful, courageous, bold, generous, compassionate, just, loving, forgiving. God, make those parts of my life come alive. And God, when my pride and my arrogance and myself wants to steal the show, God, would you remind me that this life, this world, is for your credit, for your honor, for your glory. God, take our lives and make them yours. It's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.